0: Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. And I told you guys when we got to the end of Revelation, we were getting to all the good stuff. Was I right? We're getting to all the good stuff. And it's really all good stuff, right? Blessed is he who reads and listens and keeps the words of this book. The entire book is a blessing. But we're going to look at the new heavens and the new earth. We've already looked at the thousand year reign of Christ. Now we're going to see what God has really prepared for us. So, Let's read several verses in chapter 21. John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more pain. Here's why the former things have all passed away. Then he, verse 5, who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write. And remember, John's only the secretary. John's not writing what he's seeing; He's writing what he's told to write. For these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The Bible tells us that human beings have an adversary. There's There's a spiritual entity that comes against us every day, blinding the minds of those who would believe and then accusing God's people, the brethren. You know the name of this person. He's the god of this world. Revelation 20, there were several names for him. The dragon, the serpent of old, right? Satan was in the garden. Uh, Satan, Lucifer, the evil one. There's so many names for this person. Peter said, as a roaring lion, listen to this metaphor. He roams the earth seeking whom he may devour. Do you ever watch Animal Planet and watch lions pounce on their prey and just rip them apart? That's what Satan wants to do. To human beings, Jesus used another metaphor. He said, He's like a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. When you look at our world, it's quite obvious Satan is alive on planet Earth. People are living far below the way they were created, if you look at our Earth. And Satan's number one weapon, really his only weapon, is to lie against our minds. And as I look at Satan, he has four dominant lies. He just uses them over and over again because they work. Now, most people would think the first lie is there's no God. But he's not that stupid. He's been around a long time. The Bible says only the fool believes there's no God. You can't step out on this planet, outside, and look at this world, a spinning ball in space, and look at all of this creation and not say there's a designer, not say there's a God. And Satan knows that, right? And so, you know, in our Western world, it's very popular today with new atheism and all our prosperity and all our philosophy and secularism to say there's no God. But with all that dominant theory, still 90% of people in the world believe that there is a God. Secular psychologists tell us, and even those who don't believe in God, that man is moved by the supernatural that human beings are transcendent there's something about us we are fascinated with anything that's supernatural that's why frederick nietzsche who was a profound atheist he said when the god who has been known and worshiped in Christendom is dead the result will be a reign of gods you know we will not stop believing in god we'll believe in a reign of gods gk chesterton said when When people deny the biblical God, it isn't that they don't believe in nothing, but rather they believe in anything and everything. And you look at our world, people believe in crystals and tarot cards, new age. Here's one that drives me bananas, aliens and UFOs. You know, people look at us as Christians and say, well, I need a reason to believe and I need evidence. And, And oh, by the way, I believe in UFOs and aliens. Wait a second. We don't even know where we came from. Now you believe in an alien? Where, where did he come from? We just extended the logic like a billion miles into space. It makes absolute no sense. But see, Satan knows. We're made in God's image. We're, we're lower than the angels. We're higher than the animals. We're transcendent. We're thinkers. We're creators. And on top of all that, Ecclesiastes 3 says God has put eternity within our hearts. That's not why we're not satisfied with material things. We need something transcendent. We were made the supernatural, we were made for God. So Satan's number one lie becomes, not that there isn't a God, but that there's no way that this God has ever communicated with us. His number one attack is on the veracity of the scripture, or what we know as the Bible. Now I'm not going to get into that the Bible's true, but I just want you to look at verse five again. God is telling us about our future, a new world, a new heaven, the glories of the new earth. And in verse 5, he tells John, behold, I make all things new. And he says, right. Why? These words are faithful and they're true. You can trust the Bible. It's true. And again, I can't get into why. But let me take you down this path just for a few minutes. Let's say we prove tomorrow there was no God. Let's say we all agree there's no God. Instantly, the Bible would have to shoot to the top of every university and of every science department, and studied as the greatest thing that the earth has ever seen. Why? Well, we laud Shakespeare. He's still studied today. There's still movies of Shakespeare today. People still read his books. But if God's not true, the person who invented Jesus Christ would be better than Shakespeare. How do you invent a peasant who comes from 3,000 years of Jewish history, fulfills all these prophecies, is kind to people, says he came from heaven, said he's the son of God, dies on a cross, rises again. Oh, by the way, four biographies are written about him. Luke writes what we would call, if it's fiction, historical fiction, which didn't even exist until about 100 years ago. Oh, and by the way, we changed the calendar and forged Western civilization That person would be the smartest person that ever lived. What about 24,000 manuscripts? What about finding the Dead Sea Scrolls? I could go on and on and on. The Bible is true. And God said his word would stand forever. And it says here, these words are faithful and true. What's faithful and true? That God has prepared a place for you and me. For 1,700 years, the book of Revelation was a sealed book. People weren't allowed to read it. It wasn't in their hands. Even when it came in their hands, nobody preached on it. No one really preaches on it today. Uh, today, most churches, they look at Revelation 2 and 3, the churches, and then they jump right to here, 21 and 22, and that's it. And I know Satan's involved because it's the only book that promises a blessing to those who read, here and live out the words of these prophecies. Second lie of Satan is that man has no future Beyond this life. I so enjoyed Eric Metaxas Wednesday, where he talked about going to Yale and this prestigious university where he goes to find the answers to the questions of life, and really, they don't have any answers. In fact, they have a very depressing uh, set of answers, which is, Eric, there is no God. There is no life after the grave. By the way, become a lawyer, get rich, and see if you can muddle through this life. Because one day, poof, your candle's going to go out. And that's it. And oh, by the way, this love you feel for another person, that's all chemicals in your brain. You don't really love them. Very depressing. If you read the Puritans, it's amazing how many of their songs, how much of their theology, and how much of their sermons were based on a new heaven and a new earth. The new home that God is creating. It filled their theology, it filled their wonder. Why? Because life was hard, life was brutal. They were fighting so many things, they were persecuted. Today, it's hard to hear anybody talk about heaven or even wanting to go there. Why? Because we have it pretty good on this planet, or at least the 1% do. And so that has really been removed from our theology. And Satan's lie is there is no heaven and no future And John Lennon popularized it in his famous song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Yeah, I can imagine, it's pretty depressing. And I'm not the only one, Lennon said. Come and join us and we'll make the world as one. How's that going? Not too good, right? John said in verse one, I saw a new heaven. And I saw a new earth, and God's going to be at the center of it, and he's going to give us meaning and purpose. Satan's third lie is there's no judgment. There's no life to be examined. There's no life to give account for. We saw that that's not true. In Corinthians, it says, you and I, believers, and here's a little bit of the gospel, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth and believe uh, in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, you will be saved. In other words... His blood will cover you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Not based on works. It's a gift of God. But even as believers, we're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ, and the things that we did in the right spirit will be like precious gold and silver, and then there's going to be things that we did where, you know, we were kind of like Ananias and Sapphira, and it's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. There's even a judgment for believers. And then last week, we looked at the great white throne judgment, which no one wants to be at, where you're going to be judged according to your works, And that's going to go very badly. But Satan has people convinced they will never give an account for their life. Jesus said every idle word that you have uttered, you will give account for. And then finally, Satan's final lie is that God isn't good. He said to Eve, did God really say you'll die? Oh, God's... Holding out, because he knows you're going to be like God, there's something more. All this abundance in the garden, no, God left something out. I shared with you last week from the Old Testament that Jonah believed in the graciousness of God. He didn't want to go to Assyria because he said, God, you are merciful and kind, and I know you'll save the Assyrians. But there's another place where we see the kindness of God. It's in the story of David. He sins with Bathsheba, and he has her husband Uriah killed adultery and murder he hides it for an entire year and finally Nathan the prophet comes along and he tells david a story it's a beautiful story he said david there's a man who had a hundred sheep full of abundance and another man over here who had one little ewe lamb the guy with a hundred came over and took the one little lamb and david said we got to get that guy he's a scoundrel and nathan said yeah it's you beautiful And David comes to repentance, but look what Nathan says. It tells us a lot about the character of God. Nathan said to David, you are the man. That's not for driving a golf ball 350 yards down the chute. That's for being in sin. You're the man, David. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Listen to this. And if that had been too little, God said, I would have given you so much more. How many of us look at God that way? How many of us look at God like all that he has given has come from his hand? We tend to go the other way and say, all of my problems are this and so forth. He said to David, no, David, look at all I have given you, and if you would have only asked, I would have even given you more. This is a God of abundance. This is the God we need to know and understand. This is the God of the Old Testament, by the way. And here in chapter 21, new heavens, new earth, streets of gold walled city of gold, crystal sea, the abundance of God will be evident. Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven said, when we have assumed, all that we have assumed about heaven is a reduced place as only an alternative to an intolerable existence here on earth. Only the elderly, disabled, suffering and persecuted might desire heaven. But the Bible portrays life in God's presence in our resurrected bodies, in a resurrected universe, as so exciting and compelling that even the youngest and healthy of us should constantly be daydreaming about it. It's gonna be that grand. It's gonna be so over the top. Verse one says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. So, my wife loves the ocean. Oh my gosh, she loves it. She and I, she's so thankful she married me, can get to the beach at nine in the morning and sit there until seven at night. Drives our kids crazy. She loves the beach, she loves the ocean, she loves being out on boats. So, I knew I was preparing this message and I said, Hey, Monica, I'm preaching on something tomorrow I know is not underlined in your Bible. There is no more sea. And I love this about her. Reflexively, she said, you know God's got something better. And that's what this chapter's about. We have more of a theology of the new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21 than anywhere else. But the idea of no more sea, don't take it negative. The idea is what God has planned is enhanced. It's better. How do I know? You didn't know anything about the ocean before you got here, did you? And you like it. And you like a lot of other things about the earth, you will love what's coming. I remember when we saw Avatar, people were freaking out. And it was a glimpse to me like, oh my gosh, if this can come from the mind of James Cameron, can you imagine what's coming from the mind of God? It's going to be incredible. No more see, but the things God is preparing is amazing. Now, how, how is God going to do this? I've been sharing with you guys that earth is our home. It really is. Now, if you die tomorrow, you're going to go to heaven. You'll spend a little time there. But predominantly, the rest of eternal life is right back here. That's why we like it so much. It's why we don't want to die. It's, we feel comfortable here. We have this earth suit. We like earth, even in a fallen state. We're coming back here in an amazing state. Listen to these scriptures, the psalmist, thousands of years ago. Psalm 102, of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. They will grow old like a garment, that's the second law of thermodynamics, like a cloak you will change them, and they will be changed. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 21, heaven and earth will pass away? And my words will never pass away. Peter tells us in 2 Peter how it's going to happen. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So we're coming right back here, but first God's going to kind of do a total makeover. Now, why fire? Why does it have to burn? Think about this. When God judged the world in Genesis chapter 6, he did it with water. Water is like a cleansing. But fire purifies. This world is stained by sin. Even creation is groaning for redemption. And God's going to do a makeover by purging it with fire. And as John says here in chapter 21, verse 1, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And this will be our home. Now think about this. When we say the word home, it resonates with all of us. Even if you came from a broken home, home is always home. There's something about home, right? Oh, I just want to go home. If you ever get sick at work, I just want to go home. We we, we love home for, for a variety of reasons. First of all, it's familiar, right? Here it says we're getting a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we like new things, right? New homes, new cars, new gadgets. We like new stuff, but we don't like extreme new stuff. We want it to be a variation or a little innovative of the old. And that's what the new heaven and the new earth are going to be like. A lot of things are going to be similar. A lot of things are going to be different. But the one thing, it's going to be familiar. It's going to be the place we recognize. If you ever read C.S. Lewis and some of his fictional accounts and then kind of merge it together with a lot of other things he wrote you can condense it into this he said this is it the country for which i was made at last the real world i've been born all my life on earth was but a series of labor pains preparing me for this this is joy itself every foretaste of joy in the shadowlands was but the stab the pang the inconsolable longing for this place how could anyone be satisfied with anything less No wonder Satan's blinding us from this reality. No wonder Satan doesn't want us to know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and like a bride we can anticipate it because as we think of these heavenly things it makes this world so much better. The new earth will be somewhat familiar. No more sea, but doesn't say there's not water. We need to see now because... Three-quarters of the earth is sea, and that's how the hydraulic system works. You're 60 to 90% water, but we're going to have no blood. We're going to be flesh and bones. So, so the whole water system will change. There'll be a river of life, but whatever God has, it's going to be wonderful. Now, this one may have surprised you. I saw a new city, or the new Jerusalem, verse 2, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride for a husband. The rest of the chapter gives us all the dimensions of what it looks like. Some of you are thinking, man, God God got this backwards. He gets rid of the sea. He should have got rid of the city. That's what most people think, right? We think cities are bad, and then the suburbs are good, right? Do you know for the most of history, it was the opposite? Most people were city dwellers, and the pagans lived outside of the city. But we think cities are bad because of what we see today, crime and violence, etc. And then we read in Genesis 11 that Nimrod says, Come, let us build a city and make a name for ourselves, a ziggurat into the heavens. And we all know how that went, right? So we think cities are bad. Campbell Morgan said, and this is profound, he said, The Bible begins in a garden, and it ends in a city. Why? Why? Because he believed in the garden, God gave man the capacity to build a great city. He believes in the garden that the capacity for human flourishing was so strong, have dominion over the earth, that man could have built a great city. But all we see is Nimrod building a city, making a name for himself. And I agree, New York City, Chicago, L.A., Paris, London. People go there, why? To make a name for themselves. But there's something fascinating about cities. There's a reason we live near them and go to them. It's a place of a cultural center, right? The thing I love about New York City is I can go to a ballet one night. I can go to a sporting event the next night. I can go to a lecture the next night. Uh, I remember going to my daughter's school one one time for a reunion, and one of her teachers was teaching. and He said, Look, I got to leave at 12 noon, and uh, I'd love to answer your questions. He goes, But on Saturdays, I go to a bar and I watch Clemson football with like a hundred people. Like a hundred people? I, I've never met anyone that watches Clemson football, but only in New York City. It's the place of flourishing, the best bookstores, the best eateries, the best culinary desires. Tim Keller has written more about the city than anyone I know. He's pastored there a long, long time. And Tim talks about, and don't take this the wrong way, he talks about the homosexual agenda. And again, we're not against homosexuals. We believe, like everyone, that God's grace is sufficient for them. But the point he's trying to make is that Homosexuals are less than 1% of the population. They are a very, very small minority. And yet they have advanced their agenda in 30 years like no other group in the history of America. Tim Keller argues, because most of them live in cities. And whatever happens in cities spreads everywhere else. Now the city God's making come down from heaven. He's the architect. He's the designer. And we're going to glorify his name. And by the way, I love what's going on in cities. I don't know if you know this, but New York City, in 2000, 1% of the people in Manhattan were evangelical Christians. Through the work of Tim Keller and so many other churches, that's risen to 5%, and they believe in the next 10 years they can move that to 10%. Why? Not making a name for themselves, but making a name for the great God that we serve. It's a beautiful thing. God is the architect. It comes down from heaven. Not only will it be familiar, this new home, the people that we love will be there. That's what makes home, home. Uh, I grew up in um, a family where we never owned a home. We moved around a lot. We lived in apartments and finally a twin, but we never owned a home. And uh, finally I was able to buy a home, a twin, and I lived there 10 years. And I remember the day we sold that home. So hard for me to leave. In fact, I have reoccurring dreams that I lose homes. It's just something from my childhood. And I remember leaving that home and being very melancholy until I got to my new home and opened the door and saw my family there. And that day, I realized home is where the people I love are. It's going to be make heaven heaven. Life's been all about relationships. Yes, we've had accomplishments. Yes, we've all done great things. But the time we've spent with people, eating together, reading together, crying together, praying together, challenging one another, its what heaven's going to be like. It's what the new earth's going to be like. It's going to be filled with people. The other thing I love about home is it's a place where we all fit in. Uh, My big fat Greek wedding, the reason we all kind of get it is because no matter whether you're Greek or anything else, it's kind of common to all of us. Home is where we fit in. We let our hair down. Everybody knows our weaknesses and our strengths. It's when we go outside, we get judged and bullied, but, but home is where we fit in. We're gonna fit in in home. Every one of us is gonna know God and he's gonna have a place for us. But here's the greatest joy of the new heaven and the new earth. Look at verse 3. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. Now this is nothing new. God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. When he brought them out of Egypt... He gave Moses a blueprint. Moses, take the gifted artisans, but build it exactly the way I tell you. And build a tabernacle that I might be among you. God didn't say build a tabernacle that I would be in it. But that I would be among you, right in the middle of the camp. The tabernacle wasn't for God, it was for the people. It was a physical representation that God was among them as they watch the sacrifices. But we all know that God is everywhere. Leviticus 26, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Ezekiel 37, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. 2 Corinthians 6, I will live with them and walk among them and be their God and they shall be my people. And here, God's tabernacle, he will dwell among them. There was a rabbi, Menachem Mendel Kotzak, one of the great theologians, not a Christian, of the 20th century. And he would ask his followers a question, where does God exist? And of course, everyone said God exists everywhere. No, the rabbi responded God exists wherever man lets him in. People are looking all around for a place where they can meet with God a church, a beautiful cathedral, a temple, a deer stand, on the beach. Everybody's looking for a place where they could feel the presence of God. And yet, God has always desired to dwell among us in the garden. In the tabernacle, in the temple, and then Jesus took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And then in Revelation. But this rabbi said, God is anywhere where we let him in. As Christians, we're going to go through dry times. Seasons where we're not hearing God's voice like we used to. Seasons where we don't feel God. Seasons where it's not like the way it was. And when we do, we blame church and other Christians and institutions, and everything else. But what we don't realize is God is wherever we let him in. I uh, read an obituary this week of a famous philosopher that I have heard of before. His name was Jean Vanier, a French-Canadian philosopher, a Navy veteran, who all his life, searched for the meaning of life. He wound up in Paris, and he started an outreach called La Arche for those who were mentally challenged. He would go and visit with them. He would eat with them. They would spit up. They would spill things, and after a while, he got used to it, and he built this, and then he started other branches And in a 2015 interview with the Wall Street Journal, he was asked what would be contributed by those unable to devote themselves full-time to serving others. In other words, if you couldn't start something like this, what could you do? He says, try and find somebody who is lonely. And when you go to see them, they will see you as the Messiah. Go and visit a little old lady who has no friends or family and bring her flowers. People say, but that's nothing. Gene Veneer said, it is nothing, but it's everything. Victor Hugo said, to look into the face of a human being was to see the face of God. God's presence is wherever we look. It's whoever we invite in. But in the new heaven and the new earth, it'll be our very being. It'll be the air we breathe. It'll be the lens we see everything through. The rest of the chapter says there's no more sun because God will be the light. Now, I told you I was going to get back to the moon. A lot of people say, well, Genesis can't be true because, you know, God says let there be light, but there's no sun and moon till the fourth day, so that doesn't work. And the quick answer is God doesn't need a sun for light. We see that here in Revelation. The sun and the moon were given for times and seasons and from our observance. 63 million moons fit into a gutted out sun. Scientists have no answer for this because perspective-wise it makes no sense. The distance from Earth to the moon and the moon to the sun does not warrant how we see the moon and the Earth in the sky. We see them the same size. So when you're on the beach and you look up at the sun, at night the moon will look the same size depending on where you see it and when you see it, and I know there's different sizes, but they are the same size and they shouldn't be because the perspective is all out of whack. Oh my gosh, it almost looks like it was designed that we would view them from this position, doesn't it? See, this is the great God that we serve. But we don't need a sun. God will be the light. We don't need a tabernacle, God will be our dwelling. C.S. Lewis said, we are displaced people longing for this home. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation was that I was made for another world. And there are days where things go wonderful and we fit in our own skin and life is good, but the next day doesn't feel that way. Every day will feel that way in this place. Augustine said, I am groaning with inexpressible groaning on my wonder's path and remembering Jerusalem with my heart lifted towards it. Jerusalem, my homeland. Jerusalem, my mother. The old saints were homesick for heaven. They knew nothing less could satisfy. Chesterton said, the modern philosopher has told me again and again that I was in the right place. And I had still felt depressed even in acquiescence. When I heard that I was in the wrong place, my song sang for joy like a bird in spring, and I knew now that I could feel homesick for home. And yet, we have a theology and it's invaded the church that this could be your best life now the prosperity gospel, the everything's gonna work out gospel, the new you. And listen, There's 10% of that. Right, we are new creations and and we are praying that the kingdom comes and we can live life with God on this planet. But I disagree with the amillennialists that it's ever gonna get to a place where we're gonna get it so grand that there's gonna be streets of gold down here and that the new Jerusalem's on earth. I disagree because I'm homesick. And the reason I know I'm homesick is because my experience with God is not where I want it to be. At the greatest of times, it's only a glimpse. And that's why in the Bible, every heart's longing was to see God. Moses said, I want to see your glory. God, I don't care about all this other stuff. Jesus said, the pure in heart, they will see God. The psalmist said, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David said, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Is there any wonder why Satan doesn't want us to think of this place? Because the ultimate reality in this place is the very presence of God and you and I looking in his face. And when we do, all anxiety, all fear will cease. We don't know a lot about heaven. We look through a glass dimly. It hasn't entered into the mind of man. That's why sometimes the writers tell us what's not gonna be there. And in verse four it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and no more pain. The Bible doesn't skirt the idea that this all exists. Paul said, I've been pressed on every side. You know, he has this wonderful resume before conversion. He's a Pharisee, he's a stock of Benjamin. You know, oh my gosh, he went to Hebrew University. He's he's the man. Then after Christ, beaten with 40 stripes, pearl of robbers, pearl of countrymen, pearl of robbers, beaten 40 stripes. Prison many times, naked, shipwrecked. The Bible doesn't hide our sorrows. But what it expounds is our future. This light affliction doesn't compare to the weight of glory. No more pain. And I don't think this is the pain like I stub my toe, right? Or my rotator cuff hurts. This is the pain of relationships, the pain of brokenness, the pain of the struggle of getting along with one another. And then finally, verse 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. And by the way, the Bible says, such were some of you. And these are the people that God longs to redeem will have no part in this place. I can't tell you what's gonna replace the sea. And streets of gold, uh, I can't tell you what's gonna be there. I know it's gonna be over the top. I know God's gonna be there. I know it's gonna be amazing. And by what's not there, I know there will be fullness of joy. This is why the Bible says we should be heavenly minded and think on those things that are above. There is a destination, there is a brochure of a new heavens and a new earth. And it's what God's plan for you and me.